now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. the money and how did you get the woman? What do you think? There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? You know, I'm just the rock on the Tesla window window of life. That's all I got. <laughs> oh, that was so funny when he did that though, because like what were you? They're like, oh, we'll try it again. Could you try to break this glass, please? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Oh my fucking god! Well, maybe that was a little too hard. <laughs> Should we try the beer? <laughs> Sorry. It didn't go through. That's so true. That, was a, that was a plus side. Let's try the right. Okay. Try that one, really? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Oh, <laughs> man. It didn't go through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the same thing. <laughs> why does it look like that? It looks so bad. It's like. It's very brutalist. But not even brutalist. It's like they try to go with the Robocop, like, sharp tank thing, except make it way less cool and also not a tank. So... Man, all the, like, iPhone footage we're getting that people are recording from behind the wheel of Tesla drivers just asleep in bumper-to-bumper fucking California traffic is just... I can't wait to find out about the next Tesla person roasting to death inside their car because they deserve it if they're going to drive like that. It's not 2058. You, You can't be asleep behind the wheel of a vehicle yet i'm sorry sorry well i got a cat he's a huge boy uh and we got him yesterday and the shelter said that he's really really timid and he was surrendered because in his last house he wouldn't come out from underneath the bed for a month so we bring him home we get him all settled we have him in a little room with places he can hide if he needs to with everything that he needs and he gets out and he's like cool uh can i go see the rest of your house and like just be cool he was absolutely fine didn't need to hide at any point just was like talking the whole time wanted heaps of pats then fell asleep like on his back fully like superman and his name is gulliver because he's so big he's a big boy fat bitch and she <laughs> we're all the lullapudlians at his beck and call he did wake up at 5 a.m this morning desperately trying to get into my room i'm like dude go back to sleep also just desperate to go into the toilet with you when you're in the toilet like we'll run through the house to get to you and it's like i'm not going i'm just going to the toilet why do you need to be here anyway that's my news oh just a minute oh but this isn't my baby i found it on the doorstep outside no really An old lady left it on the doorstep, and I was afraid it might roll off, so the best thing for me to do was to... My dear young lady, we're only here to help you. We're your friends. I wasn't leaving it. I was just picking it up. Hello, welcome to What's in the Basket. I'm Tiff, and as always, I'm joined by Candice. Hello. And Amelia. Hello. And this week we are starting our month of Christmas programming with a bonus episode, which if you've forgotten means we do no research and just bullshit for like an hour about some movies that can't necessarily sustain an entire movie or an entire episode on their own. I mean, they can't even sustain an entire movie some of the time, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the ones tonight definitely can't. (laughs) So today we are uh, coming back with another double feature. We are talking about two movies, the first of which was already a remake, but we'll get to that, Uh, and the second of which was a remake of the second movie. So we're going to talk about Bachelor Mother from 1939 and Bundle of Joy from 1956. 
we can sum up the plot of both films in one go because they're essentially the same fucking movie, like down to word. It's almost like The Omen and the remake of The Omen, which was just shot for shot a remake of The Omen with CGI. The funniest part of the original Omen is all of the shitty effects. And to see it like stripped of that, it's like, what's the point? What am I watching this for? Don't even have Gregory Peck's eyebrows that have gotten out of control to, like, focus on. You also don't have uh, uh, Lee Remick wearing, like, a Mao collar or whatever they're called. Her Chairman Mao outfit that she's wearing, I believe, when she gets pushed off the <laughs> staircase, but over the banister. But I might be incorrect. Well, she's not really off a staircase. Uh, what would you call it? Just a railing, I guess? Yeah, when she's um misting her, like, Boston ferns or whatever she's got. Yeah, going to say her ficuses. I come from the land of ranch houses, so... It's all very exotic to me, the idea of having a second floor. Well, I guess we should explain the plot then. Um, so Ginger Rogers and in the the remake of the remake, Debbie Reynolds both work in uh, department stores where they are uh, fired, I guess. Well, Debbie gets fired. Ginger does too. She gets served a notice, but they're like, it's just, you know, for the holiday season, we don't need you. And it's like, surely that's when you'd need her most Christmas card you'll get one uh-uh. don't be jealous Jeez. it's not going to be easy getting a job after Christmas it wasn't easy before Christmas I beg your pardon in fact he wants to fire you so do I you what as of tonight you will receive the usual severance pay yeah, I'm not I'm not really uh, clear on the managerial tactics at play there, especially because in both versions, um, the manager is played by a dum-dum. It's David Niven in the, the original remake and Eddie Fisher in the second remake. Uh, they are both the sons of the kind of patriarchs behind these department stores. It's uh, Adolf Manjou in Bundle of Joy and... Um, Oh, what's the racist name? Um, <laughs> what's the, the racist the, name? The guy who, the guy um, who was a racist. Um, Charles Coburn. Charles Coburn, right? In in Bachelor Mother, right? Mm. KKK guy. <laughs> um, yes. So. <laughs> Uh, and in, in both movies, uh, they have, like, some degree of, like, girlfriend-female friendship. It's it's more important in Bundle of Joy. But, and they both have an annoying guy who's a stock boy who's just this hangers-on. It's Frank Albertson in Bachelor Mother, and then it's uh, Tommy Noonan in Bundle of Joy. And anyway, whatever. So basically what ends up happening is Ginger slash Debbie, they're on the way f- home from work after getting shit-canned, and they see a woman dropping off a baby baby at a foundling home and they're like oh no you can't do that you should never abandon your child and then somebody opens the door and they're like hey what's up and they're like oh look, look at the, the baby and they're like oh that's your baby they're like yeah, oh, my baby <laughs> just a minute don't you dare don't you dare leave your baby here oh i'm not the mother there isn't any mother they'll take good care of it here it's such a wonderful baby. Won't you come in? But it's too late. It is your baby. Because the people who run the family home are like, oh, wait, we have a brilliant idea. We're going to go to their bosses from the department store jobs that they just, again, got shit canned from. And we're going to convince them to hire you back because clearly the reason you're giving up this child is because you cannot afford to water and feed it. And all sorts of wacky hijinks ensue. Being forced to take on a baby that is not your own because you desperately need your job because of late stage capitalism. I mean, if anything, these these films are a comment on nepotism and why it's bad. Because, like, what I don't get in, one, David Niven's, like, a party boy? That's just not tracking. That man looks 65 years old. David Niven was 29 <laughs> years old in that movie, and that is so... He looks like Stanley Tucci in, like, Monkey Shines. No, Niv has got kind of um, that Dongles disease that Doug Fairbanks Jr. had where he looked fine, he looked fine, and then he looked really old, but it's like the reverse, <laughs> where he didn't look old, he looked old, and then he looked older. <laughs> it's 
So Niv never even had that like beautiful, like glorious Adonis moment, you know, that Dongles had circa like 1928. He never had that. It was meant to be Dongles in this movie. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was supposed to be David Niven. That actually is fine because I think Niven has a really good rapport with the baby and I cannot in any way imagine that working with Dongles because Dongles himself is the baby. Hi. I'm the baby, brand new, just out. Gotta love me. Come on, gotta love me. <laughs> Dongle's just one big fat baby that just somehow just transmogrified into a Hollywood leading man and then regressed back into being a big fat baby. Much like Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> Well, you know, so then it's it's Christmas time when both these movies are taking place. And then the father of the Niven slash Eddie Fisher character, again, Charles Coburn slash Adolf Manjou, become involved. They want to be, uh, they think their sons are denying paternity and they are going to take the baby by any means necessary. And then there's some, again, some further uh, little complications involving Ginger slash Debbie's landlady. In the Debbie version, it's Una Merkel looking totally unrecognizable, looking like Joan Blondell in Grease levels of unrecognizable. <laughs> so uh, then, you know, there's a party on New Year's Eve that they go to and they pretend that they don't speak English and they speak Swedish. And there's, of course, the this really good line where Ginger makes a joke about how June Wilkins could be going stag because she's got shoulders like a linebacker or whatever. Well, how'd you like her? She's not bad for a fill-in. Personally, I just assume go stag. Mm-hmm. You could too with those shoulders. And it's very effective because Niven and Ginger have great chemistry. He's an easy punching bag because you like Niven in this kind of playful, stupid role. He's fun and he's cute and he's just like a little nugget. And you don't get that at all from Eddie Fisher. And you just desperately are waiting for the moment where Eddie Fisher stops singing because Pundle of Joy is also a musical, inexplicably. And like, they don't even try to subtly introduce the songs. There's a bit where Eddie Fisher is singing directly to camera and it, you just desperately want it to end because it's terrible. And also he's just terrible in it. At every point. Like Adolf Manju is being interviewed by a news cameraman or something, uh, by a news reporter about his business ethos or whatever. And then the reporter's like, oh, well, let's get the young generation's take on it. And then it, he goes over to Eddie and Eddie <laughs> just starts singing. The automobile improved the communications, completely changed. Yes, sir. I'm sure we all agree with that, JB. But now let's hear from the younger generation. Dan, have you any special romantic interest you can tell the folks about? Any one girl? Although the love of my life and I have never met, I guess as yet it wasn't meant to be. Well, he's just like, oh, we've set up, we've set up a piano for you. Get ready to sing. Like, how do they a know he can sing? Like, what is the deal there? And then b, why would they make him sing? It kind of reminds me of that, you know, that SNL bit with Kristen Wiig, where it's like, don't, don't make me sing. Oh, I know. Why don't we have some music? Idea. William, you play. Yes, I've heard your piano is quite good. No, 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 I couldn't. Do, William, he's wonderful. Oh, don't make me sing. <laughs> I've seen him play at the Tom Tom Supper Club. Oh. oh, please, William, please play. I don't know. Oh, don't make me sing. Yes, William, everyone is dying to hear you play. Yes, everyone is dying, but don't make me sing. Oh, all right, I guess I could play one song. And Lilia, may I? I could sing one, I guess. I guess I can. Oh, don't make me sing. Oh, really, I could just play if you'd rather. Well, I don't have a choice. They're making me sing. Are you sure you want to make me sing, everybody in the room? Don't make me sing. Oh, don't make me sing. Everybody's asking. Everybody's making me sing. That's kind of how Eddie Fisher feels in this movie. It's like, no one's asking you to do this, Eddie. Maybe MGM did ask him to do that, but it was an incredibly ill-conceived. It was a horrible take. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely nothing that's added by the introduction of songs to it. And you would hope there would be something added because this is a shot-for-shot, word-for-word remake of Bachelor Mother. Like, nothing else is different. They add nothing to it except for the songs, and the songs are bad. See, I was I was watching it, and I was thinking, God, Norman Tarog, or Tarog, I'm mispronouncing the name, I'm sure, uh, never been impressed by his movies, never thought he was a particularly adept director. I was just watching Bundle of Joy, and I was like, damn, this dude sucks ass. And then I found out that Mr. T 
apparently had Alzheimer's when this movie was in production. He was in early stages. Yeah. And uh, they were just like, okay, all right, Norman, whenever he did anything wacky. Oh, my God. Well, and then, and like, apparently the cast didn't know. Well, they also didn't know what Alzheimer's was at that point, so it wasn't diagnosed yeah, yet. Yeah, they just coped with his unexplained memory losses and constant repeated instructions, just like, this is fine. Everything's fine. So, I mean, that does explain a little of why the film is so devoid of, like, any kind of feeling or warmth. But, like, woof. It just... I know Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds were married, but, like, again, like in The Big Combo, there's just no fucking on-screen chemistry there, and it's like... Especially considering that Carrie's bouncing around in there, you know, as we speak. It's like, it's really, honestly, kind of, not painful, but uh, a little... A little embarrassing to watch it sometime, you know? Uh, yeah, it's a little sad. Yeah. It's like, you're, first of all, you're watching their marriage crumble in real time, you know, whether or not they know it yet. And second of all, you're just like, how in the fuck did he manage to become the center of this epic Hollywood love triangle scandal? Love rhombus, more like. I mean, again, like we've established, you know, Elizabeth Taylor had terrible taste in men, so that's not surprising to me, and I guess so did Debbie. But it's just, he's just, he's just a void. He is like a gaping black hole of chemistry, and he takes all the warmth and charm of Christmas, and he just, he just gobbles it up until there's nothing left. I said while watching it that he, he kind of looks, Eddie Fisher looks kind of like Adam Driver, but if he had shrunk and then also fallen into a nest of hornets that's exactly it <laughs> and he's not even that good at singing like literally any other musical star from the 50s could have taken his place and done it so much i made better. a note while we were watching that he reminds me a little bit of like a male version of lucille bremer in the sense that it's like okay well i guess it worked in a record but there's no reason for this person to be a film performer like it's like every time lucille yeah. bremer has a movie i'm just like oh, well this could be literally anyone else like that could be ann miller or something <laughs> that i'm watching right now but okay and that's the same feeling i have with eddie fisher but mercifully eddie fisher's film career was very short so i think another frustrating thing about eddie fisher is that he's so smug about it too like he's just this absolute void of charisma but he is very <laughs> impressed with himself and that's kind of all you get off him is this like self-satisfaction and i mean i guess that comes from you know like you're you're married to debbie reynolds and you're cheating with liz taylor yeah and he's hot shit whatever but he's hot shit at the yeah. end of 56 so no i get it it's just it, it's also hard obviously i would think stepping into a, a david niven role because niv is just i hate him but he's also just a charm he's such a charming little elegant little monkey i love his ass <laughs> and I'd be, I'd be very intimidated. I mean, Eddie Fisher clearly wasn't intimidated because you can tell from the performance that he thinks that he's turning in, you know, uh, something that's going to win photo play ingenue of the year or whatever he thinks he's going to get. <laughs> but <laughs> it's hard when you watch the movies back to back. The New Year's Eve scene in particular, which I think is a fairly well-known sequence from Bachelor Mother, falls totally flat in Bundle of Joy. And that's because there is no anticipation. Ugh. You don't want to see them make their way back to each other across the crowd, you know, in Times Square the way that you do in Bachelor Mother because you're just waiting for the goddamn movie to end. I think, I mean, Bachelor Mother, despite it being like making light of an actual very serious problem, which is child abandonment and the fact that women were in a position where they had to choose... But it just, it's so charming because the leads are so charming and everything else like sort of works for it. Um, whereas in Bundle of Joy, that absolutely does not translate. You don't want any of them to win. <laughs> I mean, Debbie is doing her best. I yeah, mean, Debbie's I trying. Mean, she's, she's doing her best, especially considering she's pregnant and she's, you know, having to deal with Eddie fucking Fisher. <laughs> but on every other level, like they don't even get the Christmas feeling right, which is like you have one job. Yeah. They don't even get a fun performance out of Una Merkel, which is so sad. I know. I know. She could be anybody. Like, that could have been such a fun role for her. That could have been any actress. You gotta take care of your little baby. Oh, Mrs. Dugan. Oh, but Mrs. Dugan, that's not, that's not my little baby. Looks just like you. Hey, you're a cutie. It doesn't even sound like Una Merkel. It's like, do they drug Una Merkel and then just drag her out of the soundstage? <laughs> do they train well, honestly, her? If I was Una Merkel and I was like forced to be in this position, I'd be flat too, you know? That's true. Like, it's kind of like when you see, when you're watching a movie from the 30s, like a pre-code like society drama or something, and then you go on IMDb and you look up the 
unnamed actors who were playing butlers and things and it turns out they were you know famous stage performers who starred you know in belasco productions in the 1910s and they've been reduced to that kind of shit you know Mm -hmm. former light of the london stage now playing cringing woman in department store number three is just that's always horrible (laughs) also the thing that gets me is like what worked so well in the first one was the whole duck subplot um which is, it's ridiculous, but it adds a level of humor. Like the whole scene with David Niven trying to return the duck is so, it's so funny. I have a duck here I want to exchange. Certainly, sir. What seems to be the trouble with it? It's broken. I can see that, but how did it happen to break? Well, I had it. What difference does it make? I must know where to place the responsibility. Well, just place the responsibility on the duck and give me a new one. Very well, sir. May I see the sail slip? Have you got the sail slip? Threw it away. You should have kept it. I threw it away. You should have kept it. How did I know the duck was going to break? How did I know the duck was going to break? It's printed clearly on the back of the slip that it must be kept for 30 days. Don't expect me to keep a sales slip for everything I buy. Don't expect me to keep a sales slip for anything I buy. I'll also be full of them. I'll also be full of them. So silly. Silly. I'm sorry, sir. I don't make the rules for the store. They're made by the executive office. Well, I don't care anything about the executive offices. I want a new duck. Well, you're not going to get it by shouting. I should say not. Or any other way. Uh That's what you think. I'm exchanging this for a new duck and you can straighten it out any way you like. Mm-hmm. And there's just nothing that rivals that kind of humor in the remake at all. It's all played very straight. And it's like, well, all right. Because the whole situation, like the whole plot hinges on the fact that it's this sort of, you know, screwball situation, the fact that she's got this baby at all. And then in the first one, it's supported by all the madcap stuff that happens, whereas in the second, it's just not there. Well, and they obviously couldn't get the rights to Donald Duck either, which is part of the reason why it works so well in in the 1939 uh, movie. Oh, yeah. interestingly enough, I thought that was MGM for some reason, maybe because Debbie was at MGM, but the remake is also at RKO, so they really don't have any excuse for how shitty this movie is. There's also, again, you have none of that delicious madcap Niven attitude towards the Duck where everything could be so cavalier and where it's so funny to see him get frazzled you know because eddie fisher has no emotion eddie fisher is like if you were to make the world's most boring robot and it couldn't do anything of value and all it could do was just kind of gesture vaguely with its arms and go like that's what eddie fisher is but like even in the scene where he's like singing to the baby he still manages to make it about himself by like true to life on his operatic voice true to life i know it's horrible and and there's nothing in that movie that at all approaches the emotion of just when ginger looks down at at johnny and then she's she's playing with him and she's like you're my fella you're my fella and that little ginger voice hey you want to know a secret you promise you won't tell i think he likes me yeah but i'm afraid he doesn't like you very well oh well don't get upset about it don't get upset about it because nobody could come between you and me because you're my fella yes you are my fella Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, you can't eat my hand. You can't eat my hand. Yes, I know. Good night, baby dear. Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. There's there's nothing in Bundle of Joy that all you know. It's just like oh, I'm getting a little misty eyed watching Ginger in this little this ugly little orphan she picked up on the street. You know you don't get that at all in Bundle of Joy. It's like mm, well, also inexplicably, which we mentioned while watching, um, there's a like a framed portrait of George Washington hanging in Debbie's living room and yeah, right next to her <laughs> right next door. to her front door, so that she can you know remember uh, our values before she leaves the house. <laughs> Very Eisenhower. We should also mention now that. The babies in both of these are quite ugly. But, like, (laughs) what's worse is that in Bundle of Joy, they've, like, given the baby a perm, but also a pompadour. So it's like, 
all these blonde curls piled at the top of its head. No baby's hair grows. It like looks a that. little bit like the baby from High and Lois, the comic strip. Yeah, <laughs> it looks a little bit like the High and Lois baby. Ugly. Or the baby from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> so all the ugly blonde babies of history compounded. Well, this apparent this apparently is a pair of twins. The baby from Bachelor Mother, I found out, is one baby. It is one baby. His name was Elbert, which is a terrible name for a baby. And his father invented the snap fastener. And according to the patent application for the snap fastener, it's a device uh, to be utilized for such things as animal leashes and halters, guy wires, safety belts, and tent ropes. So good for Albert's dad. He's the heir to a plastic thing fortune. <laughs> I was looking at the patent and looking at the pictures in the patent, and I don't really think I've ever seen anything on a dog leash or a harness that resembled that particular closure. So I don't know how that worked out for him, but I hope he made at least a little bit of money for Albert's college fund. And then there was a pair of twins who played the baby <laughs> in Bundle of Joy. And both of them seem to have worked out relatively uh, happily. You know, they're both married. One got married to a man and retired to Florida, so good for him. Nothing but respect for my gay baby president. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is just good to hear because sometimes you'll look up babies in, in old Hollywood movies and they'll be like, yeah, and then, you know, he became a smack addict and died in a gutter at Fountain and he'll be like, oh, well, that's sad. So it's nice to see. Or it's like fucking Edward Furlong, who wasn't invited to be in the new Terminator movie, but there's a CGI version of him in the <sighs> new movie. So you just fucking replaced... Your own self is replaced by CGI because you're not doing so hot. No, okay, so movie idea. Uh, CGI Niven. CGI Niv. What would CGI Niv do in a movie? That's all as far as I got, as far as like my, my elevator pitch. It's just CGI David <laughs> Niven. Um... What would I like to see him? <laughs> He's in? the Terminator. I would like to see him as the Terminator. Oh, I'm fr- frightfully, frightfully sorry. I'm going to have to terminate you now. Um, I could see that. <laughs> I also would like to see Hustlers. Maybe a Magic Mike. Magic Mike Four. <laughs> Which number are we on? Magic Mike Four. Won't be the title of the Niv Mag. Oh, again, I didn't think this far on this one either. Um, Oops, sorry, my pants fell down. <laughs> what would it I'm be? I'm just thinking about Niv naked, and I don't want to think about that anymore. That's a horrible image. <laughs> you brought it up because you know he's got that male pattern baldness on his head. I wonder if he kind of went bald everywhere else. Does that happen? You need to stop. You know, like that, like horrible, like wedge shape, that like shape of pumpkin pie kind of shape that his that his hairline turned into at a certain point. Well, even in this movie where he's allegedly 29 years old, just like. Clifton Webb was allegedly like Stanley Tucci in Monkey Shines. He's like <laughs> he looks like shit. Fully going bald. And again, I feel bad for making fun of Niven because he did have a difficult life. So, but this is before like you know his his wife dropped to her death while playing a game of hide and seek over at Ty Power's house. So I'm allowed to make fun of him. A different note I have on Bachelor Mother: um, the entire social ethos underlying this movie is repugnant to me. But I love it because I'm a trash person. This this entire idea about you know. Uh, condemning a mother for for giving up her child when again it's not even her fucking baby to begin with and that oh they're gonna find the father but it's a really of no concern and then the bit where you know she she shows like a burn or whatever on her forehead and she's like oh he hit me with a coffee pot and then later on niven makes a joke about you know how when they find him he's gonna be really good at throwing coffee pot i mean just like making making light of domestic abuse not so cute david niven yeah um <laughs> And the whole idea where Charles Coburn can just kidnap the baby because he wants to also don't don't appreciate that. There's no legal recourse for Ginger to be like, well, no, you can't take my baby from me, even though society condemns her, A, for being a single mother, but B, for also wanting to give up a child, even though it's not even her child. Um, but then also forcing women into a position where they cannot be single mothers and are forced to give up their children. It really exists in a... Um, really shitty place for women um yeah just on all levels but because unlike some movie viewers we can be critical viewers uh we can we can enjoy (laughs) these things but also be critical of them the one thing i'd like to be critical of while we're on the subject is ginger's eyebrows in this movie also her hairstyle yeah her hairstyles are stylist hate her well, like you suggested, the hairstylist was probably a liberal. I could probably find <laughs> yeah. out. I should dig up the IMDb credits and get back to you. But um, Ginger's brows are fucked in this movie because Ginger's brows were criminally fucked in the 90s, you know, when she had that horrible Harlow, um, you know, pencil brow. The 90s? You mean the 30s. Okay. The 1890s. <laughs> 
1990s. I, I, I was thinking pencil brows in my mind. Just went, oh, you know, the 1990s. Gwen Stefani. Uh, no. The horrible 30... I don't know. I'm, whatever. Yeah, she went with the really pencil-thin, yeah, pencil thin, thin, like, Harlow Jane brows, Holler And eyebrow. they're horrible and terrible. But clearly, because things were starting to shift by the early 1940s, Ginger is attempting to bring back that brow, you know, the turn of the decade kind of a deal. And um, they, I don't know if it's pencil. It kind of looks like almost like Korean soap brows. So maybe Ginger was like an engineer <laughs> in that era. But they're like penciled in very heavily and also like brushed upwards to mask the pencil strokes. And I remember the first time I saw this movie on TV on like a big screen television and being like, what the fuck? And when they're like, you know, three feet wide, <laughs> it's, it's it's easier to, you know, really to, to go, whoa, those look nasty. They're very Caterpillar-esque. A little bit of a <laughs> Eugene Levy situation going on there, maybe? Uh, <laughs> it's really hideous but the thing is it, it really hits you with how accustomed you become to a certain look on somebody even when that look is objectively disgusting like ginger's pencil brows it's just that's what you expect ginger's eyebrows to look like and then you're just taken aback you know i mean speaking of ginger it's like yes she was a fascist basically and um obviously that doesn't align with our political views but she's always enjoyable to watch, no matter, like, what crazy film she's in. I mean, you two are big lady-in-the-dark enthusiasts, so... I mean, from the only way we've seen it, which is a VHS rip of a, like, TCM... Yeah, it's in a... Not even TCM. It's AMC from, like, 1996. So it's, like, the darkest, shadowiest situation. I saw that bejeweled gown in person on a model when I saw Footlight Parade at the Orpheum Theater for the LA Conservancy's last remaining seats. And they uh, some costumes were lent from somebody's collection, so they had models on stage wearing them. And Ginger really... I, I think of Ginger as being like a fairly average-sized human being, but when you see that costume in real life, you're like, oh, God, there's no way. She must have been smaller than her, her official stated height over the studio because there's absolutely, it's like, it's wrong size. It's a wrong size gown. <laughs> Ronk could wear that when he's doing his Carmen Miranda bit. Again, clarifying Ronk. Mickey is Rooney. I'm Mickey sorry. Rooney. Mickey Rooney doing his Carmen Miranda bit in whichever horrible movie that is where he does his Carmen Miranda bit. Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> But anyway, Ginger's a little tiny, little, little tiny. Speaking of a little nugget, Ginger's also a little nugget. How tall was Niv? Niv strikes me as 5'9", I'm going to guess. David Niven height. Let's see, how tall is Niv? 5'9". Oh, he's six foot. I don't, again, I don't believe that, but okay, all right, well. We'll move on, I suppose. Ginger is allegedly five foot three. Uh, well, that is Ronk size. So no, Ronk was five foot two. I'm five foot three and a half. I am taller than Ronk. I know this. <laughs> Are you? You're allegedly taller than Ginger, though. I don't know. I mean, really, it was very small. It almost struck me as like Veronica Lake levels of small. Seeing it on this girl who was a very small individual, but that's very small. Well, wait. Okay, maybe she wasn't like Veronica Lake sized, but she. But it's a, it was really small. It did not strike me as something that somebody who was you know, five, five, three, five, two would wear. It, it seemed like somebody even smaller than that. Anyway, whatever. But the point is, I saw the gown in real life. It looks very heavy. Ginger was was forced to wear and sport and embody a lot of horrible things in these movies. Nothing so horrible as the politics that she herself adopted off screen on purpose. But <laughs> she may be a fascist, but she's a fascist I would die for. So that's okay. I endorse this fascist, just like Gary Cooper. She's incredibly watchable, unlike some fascists who I can't watch at all. Like Ronald Reagan. <laughs> like Manju in Bundle of Joy. Adolf Manju trying to get Myrna Loy kicked out of the industry is still one of my favorite stories ever, because like, mm, failed at that. Because you suck. Like, sucks to suck, bitch. And the fact that he was such close friends with Bill Powell really makes me, like, rethink my whole Bill thing, but I guess we all can't be perfect, and if it's Hollywood in, like, 1937, at least 60% of the people you encounter are probably going to be fascists, so that's just a sad fact of life. Um... Not a fascist, but Leonard Penn, maybe a fascist, I don't want to think about him, but Leonard Penn, who plays uh, Jerome, the landlady's son, who pretends to be Ginger's boyfriend or husband so that she can keep the baby, uh, was married to our old friend Gladys George from Nobody's Darling, from our Anthony Mann episode, so I thought that was cool. I thought that was a cool fact. I also thought it was a cool fact that Ginger doesn't see gender when the landlady asks what the baby's name is, and she's like, oh, Joan, and the lady's like, oh, John, what a beautiful boy. And she's like, oh, yeah, right, yeah. What a wonderful baby. What's the name? Joan. John. John. That's a nice name, John. <laughs> yeah. 
John. It's also like they always like in both of them they say oh John what a beautiful name it's like what universe is John considered a beautiful name and not that of like a traveling flim flam man <laughs> trying to sell you his wares like also it's, John it's works a name. in Bachelor Mother because it's also Niven's character's name whereas in yeah. Bundle of Joy they inexplicably change the name to Dan so it doesn't even work on that level because in Bachelor Mother, when Charles Coburn finds out about the baby and finds out that his name is John, it's like, oh, it's further evidence that Niven really is the father of his chi- of this child and is just not doing his duty and manning up, you know, and, and marrying Ginger. Whereas there's no connection between the names Dan and John. So you don't get that at all with Manju. He just decides he's just going to steal this fucking baby because he can because he gets a letter from Tommy Noonan, who is canonically described multiple times in this movie by his superiors as an idiot. <laughs> um, also, a couple different Tommy Noonan facts that I thought uh, maybe we could talk about. So most people know Tommy Noonan from uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, where he's Marilyn's um, dumb, ugly suitor. I mean, he's a nerd, and we don't like nerds, so that's dumb no. and ugly. But um, Screw nerds. So he... Ian Bundle of Joy plays the role uh, that he takes on. He adopts. He inherits. Okay, the role played by my beloved Frank Albertson in Bachelor Mother. Frank Albertson is one of my favorite character actors of the studio era. Um, Tommy Noonan left a widow who was a former showgirl who changed her name to Pocahontas Crowfoot, which I thought we would appreciate. Oh, oh my God. And um, there's only like one or two photographs of uh, this woman on the internet, but she's looking pretty white to me. Um, and I feel like even if she wasn't white, you wouldn't change her name to Pocahontas Crowfoot. So that's one thing. Second thing, uh, Noonan was John Ireland's younger half-brother, which I didn't know. So I thought that was really interesting. Was he bought for $7 too? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I mean... Because I'd be giving that one back. Be like, I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you grew up to be Earl Holland, I'd be fine with it. If you grew up to be Tommy Noonan, I'd be like, oh, okay, all right, this is a bad purchase. <laughs> um, but Ireland, Ireland made a, a bunch of movies. Most people probably know who John Ireland is. But to me, oh, I always remember him as... Uh, I believe it was Shelley Winters who said that he had the biggest schlong in Hollywood. So I always, that's what I typically remember John Ireland for. Um, if somebody asked me, I'd say, oh, of course. That's what Shelley Winters said. But is she to be trusted? Can we trust Shelley? Can Winters? we trust Shelley? I feel like on that topic, we could probably trust Shelley. I feel like there was also um, uh, someone else kind of co signed that about, you know, the cliffs of Ireland. So, um, <laughs> I can't remember who. Was it Farley? It could. <laughs> That's entirely possible. Maybe it was John Ireland stealing her her glassware. <laughs> God, I hate that concept. I want to say a redhead. I'm thinking like somebody who, in my mind, is looking like Arlene Dahl or Rhonda Fleming, but probably is neither of the above. It could have been Arlene Dahl. Red Skelton. Red Skelton. <laughs> okay, so I'm looking over my notes. A couple different things here. Uh, one, we talk about how Dana Andrews has shark eyes, but Eddie Fisher has a whole another level of shark eyes where I'm not really sure if there's anything going on back there. He's like a fembot. Dana's Dana's shark eyes. He's like he's a shark that's he's scented blood and he's on his way to go make his kill. And in his case, the kill is a layered performance in a film. <laughs> Eddie Fisher is <laughs> Eddie Fisher. It's like. What's the dumbest looking shark? Is it like a gummy shark? Where there's just fucking nothing going on beneath the surface. There's so many dumb sharks. So many dumb shitty sharks. And I'm glad that well, ocean whoa, conservation. Let's talk to sharks. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to get us cancelled, okay? We need to drum up some. Sharks press are my somehow. favorite animal, but like it's hard to see how they thought there would be any appeal for Eddie Fisher. And I know it seems like on this podcast we don't like anyone many men especially. <laughs> uh like we're willing to overlook Ginger's rampant fascism but not Eddie Fisher being bad at everything he did. But that's just the way the cookie crumbles and I uh, if you don't agree with us well then <laughs> I don't give a shit. But um <laughs> Eddie is also like resoundingly unlikable in this movie in a way that I keep bringing it back to Niven in a way that Niven doesn't. Like one note I made while watching Bundle of Joy was that whereas Niven is good with the baby and just incompetent in other ways, like, you know, letting his life pass him by and not caring about the family business and that kind of, you know, shit. Also not having any friends on New Year's Eve. <laughs> yes, which is relatable. Um, Eddie is bad <laughs> at everything. Like you said, he comes across as totally incompetent. Like when he slams the door while the baby's trying to sleep. 
Oh, I forgot. This is the baby. Oh, oh good night. It's like you can't he can't do anything right. And you know what? That probably is exactly a scene that played out in his marital home with Debbie Reynolds because he was completely undeserving of Debbie, wholly undeserving of Debbie. Mm-hmm. And we have to watch this horrible it's like that's probably him in real life. He's the kind of person who probably slams the door while the baby's trying to sleep and then it's just like bye, see ya bitch and leaves you to soothe like a gassy screaming child with weird moose hair. I mean, I think the thing that gets me the most is like with Niven, I'm more likely to forgive him for being a product of nepotism and the heir to a large department store fortune than I am with Eddie Fisher. With Eddie Fisher, he's going straight to the guillotine. (laughs) With Niven, he'll be able to say some last words before he goes to the guillotine eventually. (laughs) But with Eddie Fisher, he doesn't get that grace, that mercy, as it were. Eddie Fisher is kind of like, he's devoid of anything, like any any, uh, substance, in the same way of like a tab hunter is. But the difference between a Tab Hunter and Eddie Fisher is that Tab also, the camera loves him. And that's what makes a movie star. It's like they were trying to create an Eddie Fisher. They were trying to create almost like a Van Johnson type of thing, you know. But the difference there is that while Van was also bad at singing and acting and dancing and most other things in life, the camera loved that little Rhode Island red hen son of a bitch. So it's a dynamic that's – it's like they forgot how to make movie stars. I think this is another thing that makes Bundle of Joy – I'm not going to say interesting because it's not, it's not an interesting movie. But exemplary in a bad sense is that it tracks to that exact point at the breakdown of the studio system where they stopped knowing how to create movie stars. Eddie Fisher is one of those last attempts at creating a movie star. He's a part of that generation of, you know, they say they say Kim Novak and Jack Lemmon were the last two stars to come out of the star system, like the idea of intentionally building somebody up to become a movie star. And he is of about that, that same time period. And it just shows how creaky the process had gotten at that point. You know, it's like you really got to blow the dust off some stuff over at RKO. And again, this is when RKO is making its big comeback after getting sold for like the 38th time in its corporate history. So it's like trying to claw its way back from the dead. And it's like, oh, yeah. And you really thought this was going to be the picture to do it? In order to build something up, you need to have something there. Well, exactly. I guess that's my point. It's more like they didn't know how to find talent anymore. There's so many young actors in the 1950s who they attempted to build up into, into movie stars. There's that whole Henry Wilson stable of guys and so few of them go on to be anything of significance. And so many of the great movie stars of the 1950s end up getting poached from other countries. You know, you've got the Sophia Loren types or whatever. You know, I just, man, this is a rough time for Hollywood. I've been thinking, like, over the course of this episode, discussion, whatever, that this story in this movie, to some degree, I mean, most of the blame, I would say, does lie with, like, the terrible cast and apparently the director having fucking dementia the whole time and shit. But it's also a movie that really only exists comfortably in, like, the 30s. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's just got that screwball mm-hmm. element that does not work in another era at all, um, but especially the 50s. And I, I think, I, like, I kept thinking about how they were trying really awkwardly to sort of shoehorn in the dance contest to the point where um, mm. Tommy Noonan, he's like, he points out that it's rock and roll dancing. Get to the business. Okay, the pink slipper's having a dance contest tonight. Mm. Rock and roll. Because a dance contest is such a relic of the Depression. And mm-hmm. to, like, just be like, we're going to go to a dance contest in 1956 is so strange. Because in the in the first one, it's so funny. It was like, what rotten luck that we won first place. Yeah. And they got this stupid trophy. Like, well, Polly, I'm sorry it didn't work out like I figured. It wasn't your fault. No, it's just one of those tough breaks. Guess maybe we tried too hard. Yeah, I guess so. I certainly could have used that money. So could I. Imagine winning first prize of all the tough breaks. That is so of the time and so defining of that era that it just doesn't translate. And the fact that they didn't make any effort to update any of that reference or, like, 
adjust it to be more relevant to the time that it was in showed what little care they had for this vehicle yeah and the department store too that that big lavish department store and like the bullocks wilshire mode is also like an anachronism by this point in the 50s that is very much a, a kind of a last gasp of the moneyed class kind of thing which is why you see it pop up it's so much in movies of the 1930s because it's meant to be this ultimate marker of, of the divide between us and them it's not a thing anymore because as America becomes more suburban, especially during the baby boom, um, as people are, are leaving cities, there's this mass exodus from urban areas and people are starting to settle in different parts of the country. You're going to lose that idea that that concentrated department store becoming the epicenter of fashion to which people flock from miles around. That's going away. And now you're going to have a Macy's within, you know, five, ten miles of wherever you live. So that's also that doesn't work in this that doesn't work at all. And it's much more credible in Bachelor Mother. But also saying that like Bachelor Mother is a remake of a German film that was made in 1935 called Little Mother. And I get I guess what gets me is that this film would have come out during the rise of the Reich in Germany. Like I haven't seen it, but I feel like it just that narrative would have been very out of place. Yeah in that political climate well and also it's 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 an american movie in the sense that it was made by universal studios in berlin so it's a little bit like mgm studios in in you know the joan v studios in france it's like i don't even know how attuned that would be to the local market anyway yeah it just it feels it feels completely out of pace with what was happening in germany at the time and also what kind of values would have been uh, proliferated it would have been helpful if we watched the movie before we started speculating on it but obviously it's not kind of the kind of thing we do on this podcast so preparation what else is there to talk about in this movie in particular in bachelor mother it's nice to see some of our old friends you know i mentioned frank albertson but also bachelor mother has a small cast but it feels like a much more intimate movie than something like bundle of joy which has a slightly larger cast, but also everything feels very dead and kind of like a sitcom-y way. It feels very flat, very like almost like it's being shot like multi-camera on like you're waiting for a laugh track to kick in. It's very odd. I don't think anyone was really trying, which like I can't blame them. I mean, Debbie's trying we've, as we've established, but that's because Debbie is an angel and an icon and... Eddie, I mean, I believe Carrie said that the best thing that Elizabeth Taylor ever did was take Eddie away from them. So, you know, I guess it worked out in the end because who the fuck wants to get saddled to Eddie Fisher for that long? But um, he's just so devoid of charm. It's I don't think I've ever seen... He's like Anna Sten or something. Like, it's just not working. I mean, okay, well... That would never work because Goldwyn expended so much time and money in trying to build up Aniston. So it's not quite the same thing. So even though this movie was a flop and did kill off Eddie Fisher's film career, again, mercifully, um, Eddie Fisher is the Aniston of Bobby Soxers is my hot take. Okay, continue. It kind of makes you wish, though, that uh, stars these days would get this kind of hint and stop trying. Is this about Ansel Elgort in West Side Story? It can be. I was thinking more Timothy Chalamet or whatever his name is. Timothy Swiss Chalet. Just uh, like enough of that. <laughs> Not interested in that. The problem with this movie, obviously, is that if everyone just sat down and had a conversation for like 15 seconds, then the whole plot, all, all the conflict would be resolved. But it works because Niven is such a um, frenetic presence that you're like, you totally believe that's like Ginger cannot get him to sit down for five seconds so they can have an adult conversation because he's too busy, you know, squeaking up a duck or whatever weird shit he does, you know, partying with girls who have shoulders like linebackers. Yeah, he's not, he's not, he's here for a good time, not for a long time. A genuine and profound expression of love for David Niven. Where's Niven buried? Is Niven here? He's buried in Switzerland. Well, I'm not going there. No, thank you. <laughs> did he die there? Why is he buried I in I believe he did die there. I believe he did die in Switzerland. What happened was, see, he was like wheelchair bound towards the end of his life. He was married to, uh, I think that's the woman he married after his wife, you know, plunged her death. It was the woman after that. Uh, I think she kind of just like elder abused him a little bit, you know, and left him. Great. Can we like not have a, a mini episode that ends with somebody getting elder in abused? a wheelchair being fucking murdered? Like, <laughs> okay, wait, this happened in the the nudist. Yeah, the nudist. Jeanette McDonald. Um, holy shit! Holy shit! That is kind of a disturbing recurring pattern. Re- really, there shouldn't be any elder abuse. We on this podcast <laughs> are definitely against elder abuse. Yeah, we are. I think that's safe to say. We're going to get Jan Rooney arrested, actually. We are going to get Jan Rooney arrested. We're going to get Jan Rooney arrested and also get the rights to Weenie Hut or whatever it is. Weenie World. Whatever. (laughs) Weenie World. Mickey Rooney's 
brainchild. Was Weenie World the name of the thing or the name of the restaurant? Because it's the name of the thing. No, it's the name of both. It's like a Krispy Kreme donut. It's just, it, it is what it is, you know. What a visionary, huh? Between this and his star BQ, to think... If the McDonald brothers hadn't fucking got supremacy, we could have been eating Weenie Wells right now. You know, Ronk, and I know that we talk about Ronk all the time, obviously everything Ronk went through, but I was reading um, a book, which I'll link in, in the show notes, about the political history of Hollywood. And there is an anecdote wherein Mayer is visiting the set of the first, I think it's the first Andy Hardy movie, and Ronk, who is like a baby, because he's, what, like 15 or something, in the 16 in the first uh, Andy Hardy. He grabs him by the lapels and starts shaking him. And he's like, you are America. You must behave yourself. Millions of people are watching. And it's like, God, no. That's why Ronk was so fucked up. I mean, I think people sometimes think that Ronk went through less of that kind of agonizing Hollywood childhood compared to somebody like Judy Garland. It's like, no, they all just were manipulated and abused in different ways, you know? I just think a lot of people don't know um of how much child abuse was going on behind the scenes of the studios i've definitely seen people kind of allude to like oh they just they overworked judy it's like no Mm. it being constantly weighed and publicly belittled for your weight and being force-fed a diet of uppers and downers to keep you performing and then being forced into a nose i mean all that kind of shit it's like that happened to all of them and you know it's not an isolated case with judy and it's also people just think it's like because they they can't imagine children being treated that way i guess in a professional environment to begin with so this is also why they're so astounded when it turns out that kids are being like you know sexually abused or whatever behind the scenes at i don't know a brian singer party or something it's like yeah hollywood's (laughs) full of terrible people it always has been and i think i haven't told the story before on the podcast but i've told the story to you guys before uh a friend of of the family knew a very 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 old woman who was involved in the theater scene and she came from a theatrical background and when she was a little little girl like shirley temple little her father took her to meet douglas fairbanks senior to see if he could put her in the movies because i guess he was friends with doug and doug said I wouldn't let ever have a child working in Hollywood, especially a little girl, because of what people will do to her. And so the threat was very clear and present by like 1920 or 1919 or whatever. This woman's you know father took her to go meet Doug because Shugan was extremely fucking old. But not enough to stop Dongles Jr. getting in Here on the Here we get action. back to the crux of it all, which is I don't think Doug ever thought or cared about Dongles. <laughs> and I think that's also why it's extremely sad that he and Dongles share a, a grave, you know, the, the the Fairbanks tomb, because he was just chilling in there. And then Dongles dies like 80 years later and is like, oh, yeah, put me in there. Dad would have wanted it that way. And it's like, I don't think dad would have wanted it that way. <laughs> and then they have to change the inscription on the tomb, you know, from goodnight, sweet prince to goodnight, sweet princes. So it's like an S, like crudely <laughs> carved onto the end. I can't wait for you guys to see it. It's really good. They just shoved his bones in there along with his dad's bones and kind of had to jostle everything around. I don't think Doug ever loved dongles, but that's a trauma for another episode, <laughs> I guess. This isn't the dongles episode. <laughs> it should be, though. Bachelor Mother should be about Niven and dongles trying to raise a baby together. Like Gunga Din. Two men and a baby. This one talks. Oh. I can't imagine it. At seven months? He's been talking for a month. Well, it's a little difficult to believe, but of course, if you say so. Doesn't he talk, dear? Didn't he talk last night? Certainly he talks, and very well, too. He can recite the first line from Gunga Din. Two men and a baby. And no elephants? Maybe an elephant. Maybe the baby could be an elephant. Oh, okay. So that's what the CGI Niven movie is going to be. Him and Dongles in a loving, committed relationship raising a baby elephant. Okay, continue. Now you, now you, may, now you may speak. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the plot of Mighty Joe Young, but instead of a big gorilla, it's an elephant. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, like, even with the kids who weren't really big cash cows, I remember um, I read a book about Shirley Temple for an essay I wrote, but uh, she was talking about how even before she got really famous when she was in those, like, kitty reviews and shit with these no-name kids, the directors would punish them by putting them in a box with a big giant block of ice, like a dark box 
with a big block of ice and they would just lock them in there. And these are just like random kids in these little kitty short films. And they were literally being tortured. Like that's physical torture. Yeah. I mean, Jackie Coogan, all that shit. I, I remember in Farley's book, he talks about Jane Withers, whom he hadn't seen in a long time. And then he ran into her at a party. I think that Liz Taylor was throwing for Michael Jackson. It was something like that. Some sort of weird 90s occurrence. And um, he ran into her and and he said that it was like she had never matured past childhood. You know, like she, she like she looked and acted and dressed like a little girl. Yeah. And he thought, oh, there's something fucked up happening to you back at the studios, you know. And that's not – it's not uncommon, you know. And they all coped with it in different ways. Mary Astor coped with being repeatedly, uh, we would now say, raped by Barrymore when she was like 14 by ending up, you know, becoming a born-again Catholic and talking about how, you know, rape is a woman's fault for, you know, some sort of big cosmic... I mean, that's how people cope with things. And that's just one little girl who was in the studio system. And you hear many stories from others. And I don't know. It's just so demoralizing. And I find it very sad. And I guess kind of sad when I see people so naive or gullible as to think that, like, the worst thing that happened to any of these kids was, like, oh, they worked... 12-hour days, and then they went home, and their parents spent their mm. money. And it's like, well, yeah, I wish that was the worst thing that happened to any of these kids, but yeah. okay. I mean, it's also, like, naive to think that that still doesn't continue oh, yeah. to this day. The fact that Brian Singer is still fucking a free man. I know. Um, I guess this is also the time to say Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> um, exploitation of children and, to an extent, women continues unabated. Despite all of this Me Too movement, despite any kind of movement, because the people that perpetuate it and do it still have money and still have influence, and it's just like, man, if we ever needed to bring back the guillotine in a big way. Yeah, literally. And I think I, I think in a way it's almost gotten worse because it used to be that like when you were a child and you were being exploited for entertainment value in the era of traditional broadcasting and and film it would be like well it would be in a studio environment where it would, you know with powers in a select handful of people now with youtube anybody can become fucking louis Vuitton, hopping up their kid on and dope and exploiting them yeah children. it's like it's it's so scary now back in the day if you were a parent who was this big of a piece of shit you have to turn your kid to like a sideshow act and you know what that might require like some time and energy now with youtube you don't even have to leave the house to exploit your child i mean i guess this is the point we also say we're also against child abuse yeah i'm against child actors in general child entertainers my mom always says that we're gonna look back on little kids acting the same way that we look on like bears in the circus you know what i mean it's gonna be like a shamu type deal but it's even worse because people understand why it's wrong to make like a whale perform but then they're like oh it's perfectly normal to have a 10 year old in an environment where they're surrounded by a bunch of grown adult men that's because people lack sympathy for children yeah i was gonna say I say it all the time. People hate kids and it's fucked up and it really disturbs me. But yeah, Ginger didn't hate kids. She just hated socialism and liberals. Ginger was okay with abusing a certain kind of adult. And we've come out against child abuse and elder abuse. And I guess maybe we're also okay with abusing a certain kind of adult. So I mean, yeah. there we are. Common ground. Common ground. Absolutely. Um, if it were up to me, Eddie Fisher would have been abused. And by abused, I mean denied a screen career. So, I mean, I guess that's ultimately what ended up happening. But Ginger would have stopped that. Anyway, we hate Eddie. We love Niv. I love Debbie. I think she is... One of the last great movie stars, and I think this movie is trash, and she shouldn't have made it, and it sucks that you didn't have a choice on what you were going to make, because that's the studio system, baby. <laughs> that's what all this shit's about, baby. Being forced into horrible projects nobody wants to do, and also the director's got Alzheimer's. So I guess that's our verdict. Yeah. And that's our verdict. The original's weird, but enjoyable. Yes. The remake is just not enjoyable. The original has some real tear-jerking sequences and some, some real heartwarming moments and you are genuinely rooting for the two of them and their weird little ugly Vaughn baby the whole time. I give Bachelor Mother in 1939 to Irish Schlongs Up and Shut I give Bundle of Joy zero out of five Pocahontas Crowfoots. <laughs> Crow feet? Well, uh, in a much more safer work rating, I'd give the original Bachelor Mother five. No, that's too generous. Three and a half quacking Donald Duck toys. <laughs> 
out of five and the remake zero Donald Duck toys out of five because even though there was technically one in it it was ruined because it was touched by Eddie Fisher so it was thrown out of the nest and left to die. I give Bachelor Mother 1939 five of uh, Baby Junior's weird cross-eyed face and (laughs) I give well I gave Bundle of Joy like an hour and a half of my life and i regret that so don't don't bother with that one (laughs) all right another one in the can look at us go uh stay tuned next week for more um festive festivities fascists more festive fascists you know us (laughs) all about it uh you can find us on our socials on twitter and instagram at basket pod yeah and merry christmas month very natural yeah just like eddie (laughs) fisher merry christmas month well, I don't know when this episode is going out. I barely know what day it is right now. So just covering my bases. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> I don't know what she's wanting. Penny, it's okay. Penny, what do you think about Eddie Fisher? <laughs> you like Eddie Fisher? I hope you don't. <laughs> I hope you don't, or else you'll be disowned. Penny's the treasurer of the fan club, but she can't count, so it's fine because there's not a lot of money in the club coffers at the moment. What is it? The monkey film? The... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, what's his the, name? The monkey movie. George the Romero's monkey movie. <laughs> what are you eating? Ice. From your scotch or? <laughs> yes, I am. I wish I had a scotch right now. I'm actually start drinking before the episodes, like William Holden, to loosen up. I mean, kept him loose, I guess, right before he got behind the wheel. I'm very excited for you guys to get behind the wheel with me because um, it's not good. It's not a good time. It's not a good time for anyone, really. <laughs> really selling in my holiday to, the, yeah. to L.A. next year. Yeah. Just uh, like, come over to L.A. You'll never have to go back to work ever again because you'll be in fucking traction. Okay, so I'm Oh, back. wow. Okay. Welcome back. I don't even remember where we were. Um, um, I think I was talking about John Ireland's Doingle. You'd finish that. You you definitely finished talking about that. How do you know what I finished talking about? Uh, I know because I'm telling you, you've you've had enough on that. We're we're all out of that. We're gonna get this is extremely problematic, and you're endangering my PBS tie-in deal, wherein they have a wine with my face on it, maybe like a tote bag. If a podcaster calls Fred McMurray a Nazi in the woods and no one there's to hear it, did we say it at all? <laughs>